Welcome to The Crossing, the sermon podcast from Washington National Cathedral. We're so glad you're with us, and we hope this week's episode gives you comfort and inspiration. Be sure to check out our other Crossing podcast, Tower Talks, where you can find untold stories from cathedral docents, volunteers, staff, and artists who have each helped make the cathedral into the national treasure we all love. And now, enjoy this week's sermon. I ask your prayers this morning in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. This past April, I had the privilege of officiating the marriage of one of my cathedral colleagues in Sumner, South Carolina, at the Bride's Presbyterian Church. My colleague is an Episcopalian, the son of an Episcopal priest. When it came time in the liturgy for the Lord's Prayer, her pastor spoke up and said that the Presbyterians should be or feel free to pray their version while we Episcopalians could pray ours. We all chuckled and the Tower of Babel ensued, followed by more laughter. Why different translations? We Episcopalians pray, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. The Presbyterians, among other Protestant denominations, pray the original translation. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. From Matthew chapter 6. I won't go into the reasons why there are different translations of the prayer, but know that Jesus used the Aramaic word translated as debts and debtors. This is important because theology matters, especially when one has to make sense of a parable like the one told in today's gospel. This parable certainly provokes and has confounded biblical scholars for millennia. I'd bet my life that no children's minister has ever explicated this passage in children's chapel. I'm thinking that the verse, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes, would go over like a lead balloon in Sunday school. This passage also has one of the hardest hitting punchlines. Jesus says that how we relate to money is an important barometer of how we relate to God. Material wealth is one measure of our spiritual health. Most likely, the original hearers of this parable would not have identified with the rich boss, but with the debtors, or maybe even with the manager, who would have been part of the retainer class, by no means a peasant eking out a substance on the wealthy landowner's estate, but still a dependent curring favor with an elite family in order to survive. Knowing that he would be fired, the money manager cooks the books of his boss's clients so that they will owe him favors 
when he loses his job. The commendation is directed not toward the manager's dishonesty, per se, but because he had acted shrewdly. It's also possible to read this parable from the age-old perspective in which peasant farmers, sharecroppers, or indentured servants are often indebted or exploited by their landowners or some middleman who gets rich by buying their goods at low prices and then selling high. From that perspective, the actions of the so-called dishonest or unjust steward do not seem unjust or dishonest at all. They seem almost heroic. Yes, he reduces their debt out of self-interest, but the debt relief is nonetheless real for those who were granted it. It was within the power of the steward to reduce the people's debts, and he chose to do so. It is important to note that nowhere in this text does Jesus call the steward's actions unjust. Our head-scratching occurs when the master commends the steward for essentially cutting his profits. What accounts for this strange reaction? Perhaps his guilt is assuaged. The percentages by which the debts are reduced suggest that the steward is eliminating the interest on the debts. It brings him into compliance with Jewish law, which forbids usury and predatory lending that creates even more debt. From Exodus 22, verse 25, if you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, you shall not deal with them as a creditor. You shall not exact interest from them. For a strange moment, Everyone's best interest is served at once. The poor get relief, the money manager has a path to survival, and the rich man is liberated from his unjust practices. You see, the universe's axis tilts toward justice. William R. Herzog identifies this moment as an example of communitas, the dissolving of social stratification when the group enters a liminal space. In this story, ostensibly, the transition to your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Perhaps this is where God is in this parable, in the spaces between the wealthy, the middle management class, and the poor who for at least a moment join together in collective liberation. Now, at the risk of sacralizing a government policy preference, I believe a recent and relevant illustration of this parable is President Biden's plan to forgive ten dollars to $20,000 in student loan debt for borrowers making less than $125,000 a year. This plan stirred up a hornet's nest of controversy, even from Christian conservatives who, in this instance, 
argue one should not use biblical proof texts to support a policy position. The reason why is because scripture is replete with verses about debt forgiveness. The fact is, as Christians, we owe our very existence to debt forgiveness. During my time in college and in seminary, I accumulated something like $25,000 in student loans. It took me 15 years to pay them off. Does that mean I begrudge others whose loans are forgiven? No, and it's not because I'm some Mother Teresa of debt forgiveness, especially after I had to do the hard work and make sacrifices to pay off mine. Is it unfair? No, I would argue that in general, life is unfair. Is it fair that I was born white to middle-class parents already positioned on second base? I believe this feeling of unfairness, as expressed by detractors, runs counter to Christian morality. Trust me, I understand the argument. I struggled to pay off my loans, and it would be unfair if others didn't have to struggle like me. But is this what Jesus taught? I struggled, so you have to struggle? I suffer, so you must suffer? I sacrificed, so you must sacrifice? Where is the grace in that? And the bootstrap argument doesn't work either when two-thirds of the world's population lives on less than $10 a day and they can't afford leather boots to begin with. In God's kingdom, social and economic dimensions are spiritual. And this is where the tension lies. Jesus said over and over that he is not of this world and neither are we. Our citizenship is in heaven. This gets hard and inconvenient when we prioritize a capitalist ideology over and against a kingdom theology. In the Gospels, Jesus shares two other examples of how kingdom theology is not of this world. In Matthew chapter 20, he tells a parable called the laborers in the vineyard, which likens the kingdom of God to a landowner who hires a handful of workers throughout the day at different times. Some work a full day, while others only work an hour. Tensions escalate when the landowner chooses to pay all the workers the same wage. The other is Luke's parable of the prodigal son. The kingdom of God is like a son who has squandered his inheritance. When he returns home in disgrace, his father runs to him, arms of love open wide, as if his son wasn't a moral and financial reprobate. There is much grousing about fairness in both of these parables. One of the workers complains to the vineyard owner, 
These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat? But the landowner rebuffs this complaint and frames matters of economic fairness in terms of generous justice. Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I am generous? And in the parable of the prodigal son, the elder brother gets bent all out of shape because he's been faithful to his father and he worked hard the entire time his brother had been cavorting with prostitutes and squandering money. But the father makes it clear that he's relieved that his younger son has returned and that past transgressions are forgiven. What's more, he says to his older son, son, you were always with me and all that is mine is yours. You see, in God's economy, there is always enough to go round and then some. Even if someone gets to cut in line or jump to the front of it, that doesn't mean that the shelves will be empty by the time I get there. Why are we so hung up on the notion that if someone else is going to get something they didn't deserve? And the related notion that someone else's benefit comes at my expense. In both stories, and in today's parable, we get a picture of the type of economy that God has in mind, one without scarcity, struggle, or exploitation. Before I close, it is important to note that our other scripture for this morning, from the prophet Amos in Psalm 113, that they speak of the poor, the needy, and the barren. How we treat money and how we treat the poor are two sides of the same coin. The psalmist describes the high and mighty God who stoops down from the heavens to tenderly care for the poor. He longs to raise the poor from the dust and lift the needy from the ash heap. He would reverse their fortunes and seat them with princes. People can be poor for many complicated reasons, illness, physical and mental, lack of marketable skills, bad choices, misfortune, economic downturns, lack of educational opportunity, systemic racism, and on and on. But Amos employs graphic language to describe people who are poor simply because rich people exploit them. Hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath ended that we may market wheat, skimping the measure, boosting the price and cheating with dishonest scales, buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings of the wheat. 
This text becomes all the more powerful when we remember how the rich often blame the poor for their poverty. As I stated, poverty has many causes, but sometimes there really is a powerful oppressor and a weak victim. Debt forgiveness stories like these make it clear. What we deserve is not based on how much we work, what we can produce, or how far we've fallen. Instead, our worth is found in the simple, profound truth that we are beloved children of God. Friends, let us be joyful when God's generosity gives the less fortunate a break. Our turn will come if it hasn't already. And let's commit to forgive debt in a way that benefits the disenfranchised and impoverished more than it does the powerful and wealthy. Loving each other as Christ loves us. The moral of these parables is that it doesn't matter what you have done or not done, or even the bad decisions you have made. God forgives our debts because there is no scarcity of grace in the kingdom of heaven. Amen.